This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. While under house arrest, we're finding out Christina Nudga, a Nudga, was allowed to attend baseball games, music festivals, as long as she had a parental note. How does that work? To talk more about all of this, uh, our go-to person on this case, Alex Pearson, has been with us, reporter, uh, of course, for the Tim Bosman trial for us, and of course this, and she is with us now. Hello, Alex. How are you today? Hello, sir. You wonder why people are so cynical about our justice system. Really? I mean, there's a picture of her on her Instagram, and it's at a Blue Jay game with a beer can in front of her. I mean, come on. Music festivals, all sorts. She was having all sorts of fun. Did we know about this? Did you know that this was going on, that she had, uh, she was allowed to leave, like the the whole bracelet or anklet thing and all that, and, and, and then just from there to a parent's note? Yeah, I mean, no one really talked about her bail conditions until, I think like a couple of months ago, it was like someone was forking through her Instagram. I was like, oh, hey, this chick, uh, this chick has a lot of fun. For someone who's in so much trouble, she just kind of gets around and does all these interesting, fun things. doesn't seem like she has a care in the world when, in fact, she was up on an incredibly serious charge that could get her life in jail. But essentially, Mind you, if I was her, Alex, I'd be doing the same thing if I was allowed to. I'm not blaming her for this. I'm blaming the system. How the hell is she allowed to go out and run around when she's supposed to be in house arrest? Well, because this is our system and we don't have enough resources out there. We don't have enough officers to sit and follow every person who's on house arrest. That's why I hate house arrest as a bail condition. I think it's a whole lot of, uh, of, of nonsense. Um, because we really can't monitor. So it becomes like an honor system almost. Or, you know, you put the risk on the surety, which in this case was her parents, to make sure she follows the rules. And if they get caught, then they get in a whole bunch of trouble. But initially when she was arrested, she went into custody for four months, but then she got out on bail pending her trial. And there were some pretty strict conditions put in, which would have been house arrest, could only go to work, could only go to school, had to wear the bracelet, etc., that's kind of standard. But about a year, I guess around 2015, she went to get revisions put in place because, you know, uh, I think she felt that she uh, qualified to, to get some leniency. And at that time, they allowed her to take off the bracelet. And as long as she got a note written by mommy and daddy, she could go out and do other things. And as you can see from her um, Instagram account, which to me shows just how little she cares um, and, and you know, the arrogance of it all, you know, she's attending music festivals and, and not the kind of music festivals that it's like watching someone play the piccolo. You know, these are raves and all these, um, you know, big electronic music festivals, et cetera, where, you know, a lot of booze and partying goes on. But she was trying to sell it as, you know, these are things she does for work. Uh-huh. So should okay. that, you know, um, and again, I mean, if, if she's allowed to do it, I guess that's up to her. My question is, is should that be credited as house arrest when she really wasn't under house arrest? I mean, now, obviously, she's pled to these other charges, and, and, and the time that she spent in her parents' home is being credited to her. Mm-hmm. Should it be credited to her if it's really not house arrest and she's allowed to go out wherever she wants? Well, technically, no. I mean, someone should have been looking at this saying, this doesn't smell right, and it certainly doesn't look right. So you know what? We're going to revoke your bail conditions. But again, we don't have the resources in place to monitor every single person, which then, okay, begs the question, why do we give so many people uh, house arrest? I know defense lawyers are probably throwing their, you know, 
their items at their, their wall with me saying that. But again, I really uh, reject the notion that if you're given house arrest, you shouldn't be able to do anything, period. Well, I mean, wouldn't you love to be able to go and house arrest or watch TV all day and lounge around and kind of just chill for a whole bunch of time, Scott? I mean, it's not supposed to be a luxury. Yeah. House arrest is not supposed to be something you enjoy. But most people who go under house arrest still have access to going to work, going to school, and then that slowly turns into, well, I'm going to go to the store, and I might go Christmas shopping, and oh, maybe I'll go to a movie. It just always tends to kind of go further than it's supposed to. Yeah, I mean, again, I can totally understand, you know, if a person's got to make a living and there's been no conviction at this point and blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, you know, if you're out at baseball games and at, and at festivals and such, this shouldn't be credited to you as time served because clearly mm-hmm. it's not. Uh, right. Do you think and if they'll... I were her lawyer, by the way, I would have been saying, what in God's name are you thinking, you stupid, no. ignorant little fool? How dare you put it out there and advertise, essentially, that you're running around town going to these festivals and movies and parties and and baseball games when you're supposed to be, you know, showing some restraint and showing that you can follow the rules. So maybe that conversation was had, but I know if she were my client, that's what I would be saying. Uh, Can these picks be used against her in some way at this point, do you think? Nah. Um, I mean, that would mean that the Crown had to appeal, and they've already come in with an agreed... Uh, an agreement on all of these things. So for them to go back and change all this, uh, to me, doesn't, you know, it it doesn't appear that that's going to happen. The Crown is aware of it. They're not commenting on it. Um, And they're a pretty capable bunch. I have a lot of time for the guys that worked on this case, as you know. Um, But again, these are things that should have uh, become noticed by her parole officer, Someone who was in charge of her should have been flagging this thing. Come on, what's going on here? Um, but again, she likely had uh, an explanation. Uh, I was doing research. I was doing studying on this thing, and uh, you know, I and guess how to drink beer at a ba- on how to drink beer at a baseball game. Hey, I had to find out what uh, what was the what made for the most interesting game with my Labatt's Blue. I, I don't know. I mm-hmm. just know Scott that this is the kind of stuff where people are outraged. This, this, to me, is the most insulting to the Bosma family. They agreed to this uh, arrangement. Yeah. They agreed that this was the best for them to put closure, that this was something that they felt she was being held to account. I don't know if they're aware of mm. the kind of life she was leading, but to me it's a slap in the face to them. Alex Pearson has been with us, of course, covering covering these trials for us. Uh, Alex, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Cheers. All right. Thank you. Uh, Let's bring in Jeffrey Reed, Hamilton attorney. Hello, Jeffrey. How are you today? I'm fine. Scott, how are you doing on a rainy day? Thank you for joining us. We really do appreciate this. Uh, I I guess the point in all of this is uh, in regard to uh, Christine Nugia is that um, she's being credited in the in in the charge that she just pled to with with the house arrest that she served how can she be credited with that when she's not really at at home and she's out enjoying baseball games and festivals uh, well let me try and explain that to you uh, the, the the analysis goes this way you begin with uh, looking at uh, it sort of worked backwards in a sense uh, the uh, <clears throat> the prosecutor uh, and in this case, uh, uh, in uh, negotiations with defense counsel, they came up to uh, something that they apparently jointly agreed to. Uh, we'll, we'll sort of stake out what they think uh, will be an appropriate sentence if the person is convicted of uh, whatever charge they are proceeding on. And then uh, you say, well, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
what do we do about that uh, sentence uh, for whatever amount it is? If a person's already been actually in custody, then uh, you'll give some credit for that according to what is permitted by law. The case of house arrest is a little different. that really is uh, not a, a term of art that you'd find in the criminal code, but uh, I think in this case it refers to the fact she was on extremely strict uh, bail. And uh, as a result, uh, uh, the uh, 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 developing law has been that uh, where it's a, a really a, 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 a very strict form of bail, then the uh, court can give credit for it uh, by recognizing there's been a limitation of liberty. But 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 when we look at the case like uh, uh, Christine, uh, I've got her last name, uh, Nuja. Nudges, yeah. Uh, the, the prosecutor is going to sort of begin by that uh, by saying what do they think is an appropriate sentence, and that a lot of factors go into that. Not the least of which will be the strength of the, their prosecution. So, for example, where a prosecutor's got a case that they don't really think is a very strong case, and there's a high risk of or some risk of losing, mm-hmm. the degree of risk of losing will be reflected in some respects by a sentence. So, for example, you know, uh, if you're not in a very strong position, you're not going to be in a position of sort of demanding a very heavy sentence. You will you will reflect that by a by agreeing to a more uh, lenient sentence. I understand there were some problems with uh, proof in this case, and I read the uh, agreed statement of facts that uh, was, there was a link to it in the published reports, and it looks as though the uh, the statement of facts that, that was agreed to by all parties was that uh, she had been an accessory because she knew that a crime of some kind had been committed, but it was very explicit, saying that that uh, there was uh, there was no allegation in this case, no proof uh, that uh, she has been aware that he had committed a murder. So, so the prosecutor's going to say, okay, so what would that be worth to be uh, an accessory to a fact in these circumstances where we're not saying that the, the, the accessory is to an offensive murder, but just to some offense? And then the prosecutor's going to say, well, you know, if we have problems with proof, we may be willing to limit what we're actually demanding in this case. And uh, and then and then you say, well, okay, you come up with some kind of a figure in your head, and you say, well, to what extent then should uh, should the fact that her liberty has been severely compromised for an extended period of time, unlike you or I or other people who are not limited to that, mm-hmm. you know, we can come and go as we want and so forth. We, uh, if she's really been restricted, then then there's a developing line of case law that says that to some extent. Not the same as if you'd be in an actual jail, but to some extent there should be a reflection as if uh, it would, what would be the rough equivalent of if you'd been in jail. So if you were on, say, very restricted liberty for a year, would that be, say, the same as if you had uh, been uh, in jail for uh, three months or so? I'm, right. I'm just trying to provide an example. So it depends on the strength of the case in each that's individual That's a very case. big factor, and I don't think that's the only factor. I think there are other things that may well go into it. I mean, I noticed that Mr. Greenspan's remarks on behalf of his client noted the fact that there was a disparity and age, that the uh, relationship had gone back a long way. There was a brief uh, reference, at least that I saw published, that, uh, that, you know, he was like the controlling uh, partner in that relationship. So um, I think when you, and let's not forget, ultimately, of course, we're still talking about a person who's an accessory. They didn't commit the offense, not even accused of being a party to the commission of the offense. An accessory is somebody who, in the language of the criminal code, is somebody who knows that somebody else has been a party to an offense, and the, the accessory is one who receives or comforts or assists that person in order to help them escape. And in this case, there was evidence that uh, evidence had been uh, 
uh, tampered with, uh, fingerprints have been wiped out, and so forth. So that would be, you know, how a person would, uh, you'd be helping a person to escape. Uh, These pictures that have now surfaced, is this a moot point at this time, or or can these in some way be used against her? Uh, We're talking about, uh, I I was told, I don't know much about it, but uh, there's stuff that... uh, There's pictures there of her at a baseball game and at certain festivals, stuff like that. Well, there's an interesting question about that. Um, uh, if, If what it dem- if all it shows is her participating in events that are still within the um, are consistent with the terms of her bail. So, um, if her house arrest had, it's always going to have some exceptions. Even the most obvious ones will be like medical emergencies, going out to get necessities of life, and mm-hmm. yada yada. There may be other things if they relaxed it to some extent to say you can attend this or that event, given how long the case went on and so forth. And and all we're seeing is her participating at those events. Then uh, there's no reason to think that she's committed an offense uh, of uh, of disobeying her bail. So, so so so. But on the other hand, if 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 this if these things uh, provide uh, evidence that um, at a certain time and place when she's not when she's supposed to have been confined to her house and she was out and about, uh, then it's conceivable that uh, there could be evidence of a charge. But then again, it will come back to prosecutorial discretion. Even in a case like that, they may well have decided that enough is enough um, and and to bring closure to the entire case. Hamilton attorney Jeffrey Reed has been with us uh, talking about uh, uh, pictures that have uh, uh, appeared on, of course, uh, Christine Nuja's um, Instagram and such while she was, uh, I guess, on house arrest. Jeffrey, thanks for the clarification. Much appreciated. Oh, anytime, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've all talked about uh, rising energy costs plenty of times on this show. Of course, uh, just last weekend, Premier Kathleen Wynne came out and said that uh, this was a mistake. Uh, but didn't really specify what was a mistake or, more importantly, what the solution was on how to fix it and uh, why, if we're making a mistake, we continue to go down the same track. To talk more about all of this, Andrea Horvath is with us, leader of the provincial NDP, and she is with us now. Hello, Andrea. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. Thanks. How are you? Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. I'm fine, and uh, we certainly do appreciate your time. When did you notice, I mean, obviously you've been around the ledge for a while, when did you notice the government tone change in the legislature regarding electricity prices Then that the, and, and, and understand or realize the fact that people were hurting on this uh you know i i think um i think that changed i mean i don't even know to be honest with you scott i don't even know that they're actually sincere to be frank i'm just so tired of this government who has been so out of touch with the people of this province for so long that i don't i don't trust anything they do for a minute i don't even trust that they're sincere about this because i think it's just a a ploy to get reelected. so i'm being a bit cynical i admit it um, oh, don't you worry about that, Andrea. We all are nowadays, it seems. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on on her saying this is a mistake? Well, look, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, what? Like, what exactly yeah. are you apologizing for? And I asked this to her in question period, are you really, like, what is it that you're admitting is a mistake? Um, or was it just something that you put out there to make yourself and, and your Liberal Party feel better over on the weekend? I mean... Really, what's the purpose? You, if you're not going to describe exactly what it is that it was the mistake, then how is everybody going to hold you to account uh, to fix that mistake if we don't even have a definition of what it was? Uh, so, uh, you know, again, it's just it's, a, it's the same old uh, kind of liberal trick, and, um, uh, and I'm tired of it. She did this in 2014. Was there any response? Was there any response when you said, when you asked what the mistake was and, and what are we going to do to... No, she talked... Well, she did... She did... She did 
talk about how people are hurting and the uh you know she's she realizes that they, she wasn't paying attention to you know the people the people of Ontario and their bills and how much they had to pay and you know and and it went on and on but did she identify what which part of her failed plan was a mistake was it the privatization of green energy is it the sell off of hydro one uh, is it the private power deals that they've been signing for over 20 years in this province i mean i would say it's all of those things but uh but no she was not specific and um and was you know uh, i guess um well, one would have to judge whether or not she was uh, uh, being genuine or not in her concern, quote, in quotation marks, air quotes, concern uh, about Ontarians. Look, I've been hearing it across Ontario for two years now, three years I've been hearing it, that people are struggling. People are having a hard time. They don't see their government working for them, doing things in their best interest. Instead, they see, sorry, but the rich getting richer. I know it sounds cliche, but some inside folks, the folks at the top, are doing very, very well after 13 years of Liberals at the helm, and everybody else is worried not only about themselves and their current inability to have the quality of life that they used to have, but they're, they're beside themselves about what we're doing to the next generation. What are we leaving for the next generation? If admitting mistake, would you not see this coming? Would you not do due diligence on all of this and see how it is going to affect Ontarians? No, this, this whole plan was was a plan, that, that particularly on the uh, privatized, privatized green energy plan. Look, this was, uh, George Smitherman, you know, cobbled this thing together uh, to make headlines uh, for the newspapers, not, not to do anything uh, specific around making sure that we were affordably bringing uh, renewables onto the grid. I mean, if we wanted to do the right thing, uh, we wouldn't end up in this situation where we have community pitted against community and farmer against farmer. Uh, I mean, they've made a mess of the file, and meantime, the Auditor General says it's costing us eight billion dollars uh, more than it should uh, because of the of, of the lucrative contracts they they signed with the private uh, the private sector, and that's just the green energy file. The same thing is happening on the on the more traditional side of the fence, whether it's nuclear or whether it's uh, or whether it's um, uh, gas or or, or whether it's uh, any other source of energy, hydroelectric. I mean, it's 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 pretty serious. Uh, obviously, uh, you feel the same way as I do in the sense that she does owe us some sort of explanation of, of what she means by mistake. And, and, you know, my thought is, shouldn't you come clean on this just simply to share this information with other provinces, the premiers of other provinces, the prime minister of the country? I mean, you know, all the provinces are dealing with this. Cap and trade is on the way. Uh, prime Minister Trudeau mentioned about cutting coal by 2030. So we're all heading down this path. Why would she not stand up and say, hey, you know what? We jumped the gun on this. Here we made some mistakes or we made mistakes. Here's how we do it right. I mean, doesn't she at least owe us that so we don't put the rest of the country through this? Well, I mean, there, there's no uh, no doubt at all in my mind that there's a lot of lessons to be learned, but, but I, I fear that that's not the focus here. The focus here is about uh, protecting her own political skin and, and those of... Um, of the folks that are connected to her, and it's it's not about the you know the broader uh, public good. Uh, I mean, I, sadly, I've not seen it be about the broader public good uh, from this Win Liberal government or the McGuinty Liberal government before her. Should this be a national discussion? Is, is shouldn't this be something we should be sharing from province to province? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely, 100%. I mean, when you look at provinces on either side of Ontario, like Quebec and Manitoba, that have maintained public electricity systems, um, you know, from the time that they were, uh, they were, you know, initiated 100 years ago, those two provinces continue to have rates that are less than half of what we're paying here in Ontario. Granted, smaller provinces in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, you know, population to serve, uh, but they've not gone down the privatization route at all, and they're paying less than half of what we're paying. Yet provinces like Nova Scotia, for example, that's privatized theirs uh, even before we privatized ours, uh, they're paying you know, pretty much as high of rates as, as what we're paying here in Ontario. So what is the solution here? How, how do you unravel this mess? Exactly. How do you unscramble the egg, if you will? Uh, the egg that's you know yeah. starting to stink here in Ontario. Look, I think there's a number of things that have to be done. Uh, first and foremost, we have to stop any further sell-off of Hydro One. We have to actually get uh, the HST off the bills because it's not coming off. It's just a temporary rebate that they've they've done, which I think is a mistake. Uh, they should have actually taken the HST off. They shouldn't have never put it on in the first place. Who's getting who? Uh, but the, we also need to take a, a hard look at all of those contracts that have been signed by the Liberals. We have to take at the a look at the Ontario Energy board, which is supposed to be a watchdog for consumers, but it's turned into a rubber stamper of increases uh, for the private energy contractors. Uh, you know, there's a number of pieces. We have to pull together uh, the Auditor General, uh, the Financial Accountability Officer, uh, experts in, in the energy field, uh, consumer advocacy groups, and sit down and figure out how do we take this province back to a place where power or electricity is an asset and a benefit, and where it's provided for the public good at a cost, uh, at a cost uh, uh, at, at cost, so without huge profits being built in uh, for private interests and, and for private uh, uh, for private companies. Uh, I guess this is a question I should be asking the premier. But um, if she has admitted a mistake and that this isn't, you know, the, whatever it is, it's not working. Uh, isn't that an open door? Isn't that an opportunity to fix the system? I mean, she's already admitted it's a mistake, so she's suffering the PR outfall or fallout from it anyway. Why not just fix it? Well, I mean, this is this is where where I where I don't this is where I don't have much faith in in why it is that she's made that acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, you know, if there was if there was any reality behind that acknowledgement, some of these huge systemic issues in our electricity system, as I've described them, uh, would be on the, would be on the table. Do you know they they would be upfront and and straight up about the the fact that these are some of the drivers, but they're not acknowledging that, they're not admitting that, and they're you know they're going to tinker around the edges, uh, and and it's not going to help people. Look, they've announced a couple of programs already, uh, and and people are telling me, look, I've got a twelve hundred dollar electricity bill, forty bucks is not going to make a difference for me, hmm. right? Did we she have people that are using generators, generators to try to keep their fridge going so that they can keep food in the house. I this still have the Ontario that anybody wants to live in. And you know, Andrea, I still have a hard time I have a hard time understanding they couldn't see this coming. They couldn't, and and whether they just thought the they public would accept this or no, they, they didn't. They absolutely did not do their due diligence. And in fact, that's part of the reason why the uh, we tried to force and we did force them to put in place a financial accountability officer, somebody who who has the responsibility to look at the schemes that the government's cooking up and project whether or not those schemes are going to be financially responsible, whether they're going to work, whether they're going to uh, have the outcomes that the government claims they're going to have. Uh, this is uh, similar to an office that was, was uh, in place 
in Ottawa, uh, and it uh, it certainly forced the federal government on various projects to to back away uh, from a uh, from a a wrong-headed path on on a particular contracts, particularly with jets. I remember, uh, but a couple of other things as well. And that's what that's what uh, we have now. I mean, but hindsight's twenty twenty. We should have had a financial accountability officer in place in. in you know, for the entire time this Liberal government has been in office, because if it wasn't the gas plant cancellation, if it wasn't you know the 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 you know the, the improper way that they signed contracts both in in the uh, in traditional fuels as well as in in green energy, if it wasn't the e health uh, scandal, if it wasn't the orange air ambulance uh, uh, crisis. Scandal. I mean, look at all of these things uh, happened under this government's watch. They had. They had very, very little, uh, I think, uh, accountability, and of course, they had very, very little um, understanding of what they were doing. Uh, they did not do their due diligence, uh, and they were not acting uh, in a in a kind of a, a proper fiduci- with a fo- proper fiduciary responsibility to the people of this province. Did she, or has she said at all when she would address her mistake, when she would, uh, you know? Um, say how she was going to fix this at all or what the solution no, was? No, I mean, she keeps claiming in, leg- in the legislature that she will be, that the, the Minister of Energy will be rolling out um, more, more re- announcements to try to help people ma- manage their bills. Uh, are you worried that's in the form of rebates It just passes this on to the next generation? Well, I, I, I certainly hope it isn't because there needs to be some real digging uh, and we have to turn this ship around so that it operates in the best interest of people again. One last question. What can the other provinces and even the Prime Minister uh, learn from this as we all head down this road? Uh, d- uh, do your due diligence. Make sure that uh, what you are doing is putting people and our economy and people and jobs at the center of everything that you do. If you have a goal that you need to that you are looking to achieve, make sure that what you put in place is something that's transparent, that's uh, that's effective, uh, and that uh, that's actually fair, and that it doesn't overburden uh, certain folks. I mean, this is what we've asked the government on their green energy, or rather their um, uh, their cap and trade plan. We've asked for transparency, fairness and to make sure it's effective, but we don't have any assurances on any of those, you know, these, those three uh, kind of requirements. So I would say uh, those are the, the, the top things. Make sure that people are at the center of the plan, people and good jobs, and make sure that it's fair, effective, and transparent, transparent and that you do full due diligence with third-party review, independent, nonpartisan, third-party review of any plan before before you start to implement. Andrea Horbath has been with us, leader of the provincial NDP. Andrea, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Toll roads now the discussion that they're having, at least uh, in Toronto, as Toronto Mayor John Tory announcing that uh, he thinks this is worth discussing. In his biggest speech of the Toronto, uh, since being uh, becoming mayor of Toronto, the Star reports, John uh, John Tory made a pitch for road tolls on the Don Valley Parkway and the Gardner Expressway to help Toronto's financial issues. Uh, tolls for the roadways just two bucks, and that that would raise more than two hundred million dollars a year. You know, I think there's something to be said about tolls, and and I think everybody has such a bad taste in their mouth about tolls, uh, simply because. The 407 just rapes you with every kilometer that you that you drive, and I remember as kids and and, and still quite frequently, you know, taking trips down to the United States and and there's lots of toll roads down there, but it seems like you throw a couple of bucks in there 
Whereas taking something like the 407 is the equivalent of a tank of gas. And, you know, a buck or two, I don't think people would have that much of an issue with. Um, But when it starts to get to the point where it is close to a tank of gas or a a half a tank of gas to get like a half an hour down the road uh, or even 40 minutes or an hour down the road is is just nothing more than than raping the driver. Uh, So they're talking about two bucks uh, and that would raise $200 million a year. And in order to achieve the same sort of thing, you'd have to raise property taxes between 5 and 10% in order to obtain uh, that kind of revenue. Uh, he also goes on to say this will pay for day-to-day services, not to fund large capital projects. But again, what often happens with this stuff is the money just all gets connected and, or collected, and then it gets thrown down into the big black hole. And, um, you know, it's kind of like... Uh, the situation with the real estate market and and fees to buying and selling your house. It just kind of gets sucked into the the financial black hole vortex kind of thing. So uh, is this going to go or isn't this going to go? Here's what uh, Ontario Transportation Minister Stephen Del Duca had to say about John Tory's proposal. So my understanding is that there would there would be uh, some requ- some requirement for provincial appro- approval. I believe it's through the City of Toronto Act uh, and the Ministry of Municipal Affairs. But again, uh, we've seen we've seen nothing yet formally from the city. We'll review whatever plan comes from the City of Toronto very carefully. All right, there you go. To talk more about all of this, Jonathan Hall is with us, assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Toronto. Uh, And he is with us now. Hello, Jonathan. How are you today? Doing wonderful. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. What are your thoughts on what uh, Mayor Tory in Toronto is proposing? So I think this is great. I mean, I understand why people, you know, no one likes to hear they're going to have to pay for something they didn't used to. But like you were saying, you know, yeah. Right now, we pay to use the subway, and now we're going to have to pay to use the road, but that seems just fair. And if, and you're right, like the Pro 7, super expensive, and that's what a profit-maximizing firm does, and hopefully when the government's running this, they're going to set prices to try to make the city the best place it can be, and that price will be much, much lower than the Pro 7 charges. Uh, that being said, I know that the province has taken over the last part while well, they've extended onto the 407 beyond uh, uh, Brock Road in, in the Pickering area. It was extended another 22 k this summer. And from what I understand, they're charging the same rate that the other company does that's in a faraway land that we never see the profit. So what makes us think that the province running this is going to be any different than private industry? Uh, so you'd hope. Uh, so you're right. I mean, any policy can be done well or badly, and if they charge a price that's way too high, that's going to make things um, worse. And my hope would be that they say, we want to charge the lowest price we can to keep traffic moving well. That will still bring in revenue that can help avoid needing to raise other taxes. But uh, I would hope that you know they'd say, our goal isn't to collect as much money as possible. Our goal is to make the transportation system in Toronto work better. And we're adding tools to help people kind of make the right choice about when to travel and where to travel. So what do you think the objective is about Meritor, or is behind Meritory raising or putting tolls on the road? Do you think it's about revenue generation? Why, why is he doing it? So, so his stated thing is this is a way to avoid raising property taxes. So it's revenue. Now the question is why do a toll instead of raising property taxes? Or why there's lots of other taxes they could charge. Mm-hmm. The great thing about a toll is that Right now, we end up with actually too many cars on the road because when, like, I get on the road, I might think, you know, how long is it going to take me? Where do I want to go? But I don't think about, hey, I'm going to slow down every other driver on the road by a second or two. 
And this is like this cost I'm imposing on others, which means that I probably get on the road times, society would be better off if I didn't. And so we want there to be fewer people driving at, at peak rush. To be clear, we want people fewer people driving at the very peak. Uh, in contrast, like an income tax, we want people working, but an income tax discourages that. And so this is like, if you're going to raise money, the right way to do it is by taxing things that we have too much of. And driving at the peak is one of those. What about the options, though? Because many will say, well, there's no option. I mean, all you're doing is just charging. If the driver has to go into the city, the driver still has to go into the city. It's just, you know, you're just charging more. I mean, again, a a lot will argue that there just isn't the infrastructure in place in in order to, you know, just expect everybody to to leave the car at home. So that is a great question. And part of why we kind of think about this wrong is that we think, you know, a lot of us, we're driving to work every day. We have to go in. And we don't realize that over 90% or about 90% of all trips are not work trips. Yeah. And even in the morning peak, like a quarter of those trips aren't work trips. And so, yes, a number of trips have to happen. But there's a lot of discretionary trips that don't. And those can switch to other times and other routes and other modes. And so with that, uh, one thing I want to make clear, uh, for this toll to be really successful, we'd want a toll that varied over time. So think of something that's like, you know, one cent a mile at six in the morning, climbing to like 20 cents a mile right when rush hour is at its worst and then falling again. Uh, Because that gives people an incentive to like leave early to beat traffic or leave late to kind of, you know, pay a lower toll. Uh, And then also with the other options, you know, people are often worried. They're like, wait, this is just going to put more people on other roads and especially on transit, which is already overcrowded. And what makes me really excited about this is when you look at the overcrowding on line one, one way to help with that is to run uh, a bus line down the DVP. And if we had congestion pricing, if we had these tolls, that bus line can drive uncongested. And so we can instantly uh, build essentially a virtual uh, train system going down the DVP by having these buses go down, and it won't be congested. And this will actually help. Uh, it'll help with traffic congestion because more people can take it. It will help with overcrowding on line one because people will, there will be people for whom this is the better route to take. Uh, you know, that sounds all great and such, Jonathan, but we never seem to get there. Uh, we seem to raise costs, make life more difficult, but we don't ever see the alternative. So, uh, you know, government's never going to be perfect, uh, and that is an unfortunate piece of reality. I do think we do see improvement. It's hard, always, you know, life in Toronto is getting more expensive because it's a wonderful place to live and people from all over the world are coming here. And as someone who hopes to buy a house someday, you know, I'd, I'd rather, they, it wasn't so expensive and mm. in all the ways it is. Uh, but they're dealing with the challenges as best they can. I mean, I think if you look at like the hot lane experiment on the QEW, you find, hey, there's a group of people who are able to beat traffic now and who weren't before. And we've helped some people without hurting anyone else. And that's a great thing. And, and also with this, the other point would be there's like two discussions you can imagine having. One discussion is on what government should do and how much money they should spend. And the other is, given they're going to spend X billion dollars, how should we raise that? And I would, what I feel really confident saying is this is the right way to raise the money. Mm-hmm. And then we can have a separate discussion on how government should spend the money. Uh, and, you know, me, you, and your listeners might all have our own thoughts. And, uh, but when it do you think do you think people have the right way? Do you think people have less support for something like this because it is just simply an all-out revenue generator? 
You know, I, I you know, I, and, I, and again, I can I, think of the HOV lanes, which initially were started in order to, um, you know, to create carpooling and, and to make more people, you know, try yeah. try that as opposed to single vehicle uh, trips here and there. And then, of course, adding the HOT lane onto it, you know, well, now you can pay to ride it. And I guess, you know, you brought up a very valid point. If it takes people out of those other lanes and makes more people use the HOV lane. But again, people start questioning the object- objective. Is it really about the environment and getting people to carpool or is it really about generating revenue? So good questions. And I think the, I think people are hesit- dislike the idea of tolls because we get used to this idea of roads being free. And we feel like I don't have to pay now. And especially, you know, I already paid a gas tax. I already yep. paid a vehicle registration fee. I already, I pay my income taxes, my property taxes. And we feel this pain because it's just another, it's another time the government's reaching into our wallets. Mm-hmm. And with that, though, I think the right way to think about it is, again, the separation between how should we spend our money and how should we raise it. And with that, there's also another kind of fairness argument to add to that, which is we, we understand that transit should cost money, that you have to pay to use the train system, even though like property taxes and income taxes went to build it, uh, that you should have to pay the cost of operating it. And we think that's just and right, and I agree. And then when we come to our highways, we say, hey, you, know, you want to drive on it at 9 a.m., and I want to drive on it on the weekend, but somehow we both have to pay the same amount, even though you're the one or, you know, your friend is the one who's using it right when it's the most costly. Mm-hmm. And it's just fair. Like, you pay transit fares, you should pay a fare for the road. We just call it by a different name that people really don't like. Uh, I bet it would be a lot more popular if we just built a new road and say, hey, we're going to have a fare. You have to have a fare to use this. Uh, it's the change I think people don't like. I think when they get used to it, it's tried, I think most people feel like it's fair and reasonable. And you actually see that in other places they've done it. Uh, Stockholm is the kind of famous one they decided they were going to add a, a congestion toll, and people were up in arms. So they said, hey, we'll do it for six months and then have a vote. And after they'd done it for six months, the people voted to keep it because they said, this, this makes our city better. Um, did, they, did, did they, you know, people make lots of comparisons to what's going on in other parts of the world, yeah. and, and often only that, you know, displays half the, half the puzzle or part of the picture here. Uh, and I think that's what people have an issue with in southern Ontario is that it, it seems that more and more people are um, are trying to restrict cars, which I, I completely understand, but again, aren't really providing a, a realistic alternative, um, you know, as far as cash, cash or efficiency. Yeah. Um, and I think a big part of this is price and and you know getting back to what I was saying earlier uh, and I'll ask you this how much does price of these play into uh, in, into this discussion because again I remember you know pl- paying tolls in the United States seems a lot less painful than it right. does here and, way more reasonable and, and you drive here on the 407 it's like a half a tank of gas yeah. like um, at the end of the day where's the tipping point here and I, and I think that's turned a lot of people off them so I agree. I think the 407 tolls, you know, so they're a profit-maximizing firm, and, you know, they have the right to do that. But I think the city should absolutely not charge anything near what the 407 charges. Mm-hmm. That, But again, they, you know, like the other part of the 407, they're charging the same thing as the private company is, so they're not giving us any break. They're just continuing on. And I think that's a shame. That's, I mean, the... You know, you can imagine, you know, if they came and said the toll should be $1,000 every time you got on the DVP, I think all of us would agree that'd be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some amount 
you know, between zero and 20 cents, maybe 30 cents a kilometer. Uh, that would be right. And I think the big thing with this, and you talk about choices, and I agree. So these tolls should be time varying so that if people say, man, I really want to avoid the toll, we say, you can't. You just need to leave, you know, you got to get up early and leave. But yeah. then you don't have to pay a penny. You know, if you're willing to get on the road at 5 in the morning, you don't have to pay a single penny. And we can give people choices uh, in a lot of different ways that allow them to get around this. When building new facilities, whether it's transit or roads or what have you, as you mentioned, that's a golden opportunity to introduce something like this. What do you do when you've got a, a, a car society such as North America and then you're trying to change behavior? Like, isn't it impossible when you don't have the alternative in place? So, no, it's not, because I think uh, we do have alternatives in place. So, this is, so by alternatives, do I mean that people will, like, be able to never pay a toll? Absolutely not. But a toll can affect a lot of our cho- choices in a lot of different ways. And so this is things about maybe it means instead of driving downtown to, you know, go to a Blue Jays game, I go to the minor league team that's in my town. I change where I go, and I avoid the toll that way. Or I change what time of day I travel. I might, a lot of times what you see when people do these kind of things is people start trip-chaining, meaning, hey, you know, maybe in the world where there was no toll, I went downtown twice a month to do fun things. And now I'm going to go once a month, and I'll stay the whole day. Mm-hmm. And so I still do everything I did before. I'm just kind of rearranging my life in response to this toll uh, in a way that lets me minimize my costs. And the big thing is that society is better off that way. The problem is that when we get on the road, we don't think about the cost we're imposing on all the other drivers. And that leads us to have too much driving. Hmm. Uh, here's a, a, a typical uh, note from an, an emailer. Uh, wait a minute, Scott. Two bucks to go, two dollars to return, four dollars a day times five uh, days, twenty dollars as a base. Add on to that the other necessary uh, runs and into or traveling, although it seems like a minimum. And again, some people are now stretched on such an amount per month by uh, the recent increase in hydro rates and such. It's caused a lot of contention, as you well know. But where is this nickel and diming going to end? Again, you know, we've still got people thinking that we're being nickel and dimed to death. No, I think that's hard. And I think that's the, the, again, to be clear, there's a discussion about how much should government be taxing and how should they raise the money. Mm -hmm. So I think the answer to the nickel and diming, that's the sense of like there's just so many different ways they're taking our money. But the, the real answer to that is, well, what is, how big do we want our government to be? Do we want it, you know, a $10 billion a year government or a $5 billion a year government? Then once, that's one question, and we should settle that as a society. The second question is, all right, we chose to have a $10 billion a year government. How are we going to pay for that? Yeah. Are we going to pay for it with high property taxes? Are we going to pay for it with a congestion tax and a carbon tax? Are we going to pay for it with sales taxes? And there's a bunch of different options, but some of these options have, like, side benefits, so a congestion tax also makes traffic better, where an income tax has a negative side effect, which is it discourages people from working. So we want to do taxes that have positive side effects instead of taxes that have negative side effects. But I totally empathize. I, I hate it when someone comes and takes more of my money. I agree with that 100%. Uh, so do you think we will see a toll on the parkway of the gardener? Is this just a matter of time? I think that given the financial pressures governments are under, and I think it's inevitable that cities in North America will be adding these tolls. And I think the sooner we do it, uh, the more time we'll have to adjust and the better. I think if we did it a year later, me and you would be having this conversation and we'd be saying, hey, 
look, our city's a lot better for this. Look at all the good things that have happened. And yes, we'd have people call in and say, man, I have to drive the DVP every day and it stinks. And so there's going to be people who win and lose. But I think overall, we'd be having a lot of people saying, I'm glad we did this. It was hard, but I'm glad we did it. At what point, uh, you know, we've heard Mayor Tory say things like, you know, the congestion is so bad in Toronto that it's actually, people are losing money. It's, it's gotten to the point where it's costing money. It's costing business. It's, it's just costing money. Yeah. Uh, at what point do people say, you know what, I've had enough. Uh, I'm not working there. I'm not living there. I'm moving out. Or is it, or is it a case of it's just such a world class city? Hey, there's someone there to take your place. Uh, so no, that's to- like why is Toronto bigger than other cities? Is because we have awesome, we have great policy, we have great people, uh, we have a great location, and yeah, people will stay away when you know the transportation system is terrible. It kind of limits how much bigger we can get. And if we improve our transportation system, yeah, it'll improve. Our economy, absolutely. Just like if you, you know, to take the thought the other way, what would happen if we bulldozed all our highways in Toronto? Yeah, Toronto people would have to leave because they couldn't kind of survive being here. Jonathan Hall has been with us, assistant professor in the Department of Economics and University uh, at the University of Toronto. So, what do you think a good toll is for the uh, for the Parkway or the Gardner? Uh, so, big idea that I want to get across: the toll should not be the same every time of day. Right. It should, Start off low and then climb to the peak. And so what should the maximum and a minimum so be? So, like, start off at zero and get up to 20 cents. Maybe 25 cents would be an absolute highest, I would think, we would actually see. What's the length of the parkway from top to bottom? From, say, the 401 down to uh, the Gardener? Uh, good question. So would that be a maximum $5 trip? Yeah, it would, no way it's more than that, right? So it would be under 5 bucks. All right, it's interesting. Jonathan Hall has been with us, assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Toronto. Jonathan, uh, a, a discussion I'm sure we'll have again. Thank you very much Thank for the time. Much. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.